Welcome to The Laws of Style, featuring conversations on creativity, fashion, and the law from the leading edge of our economy and culture. Hosted by noted fashion lawyer, Douglas Hand. Hello, and welcome to The Laws of Style. Downloading to you from the at-home offices of the law firm HBA, high above Central Park in New York, New York. I'm your host, Douglas Hand, fashion lawyer and fashion law professor, menswear enthusiast. Uh, and for this episode, uh, I'm joined by tailored comfort clothing designer, Jason Scott. Jason, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. So your path to fashion design, um, like many, was not completely linear. You started as an agent. Tell us about that. I did, yeah. So growing up in Chicago, uh, sports was always a big um, part of my life and always wanted to be a sports agent actually growing up. Uh, the business side of sports, I realized at a young age, unfortunately, that my athleticism wasn't going to lead me to need a sports agent. Uh, the closest thing I would get to sports <laughs> would be to be on the business side of it. Um, so I've always had a love for sports and then went to school at Syracuse in New York. A lot of my friends there wanted to be in the entertainment industry, but more on the creative side. And I always knew at the time that I was much more business-minded than creative. So they all wanted to be writers, directors, producers in entertainment. I knew nothing about entertainment or Hollywood growing up, other than obviously going to movies and all that stuff, but I didn't realize how the agency world worked. Uh, so long story short, moved out to LA after college, worked in the business side of things, which was a lot of fun, realized that the business side of things was the agency world, so I got a job at William Morris in the agent trainee program where I was a agent trainee um, and then junior agent for about four and a half years. What talent were you representing? Was it sports? Was it uh, musicians, actors? Was there a particular area you focused on? Yeah, so we, I was in the motion picture talent department. Um, ironically enough, back in the day, I'm going to date myself here a little bit, but this was pre-sports and entertainment combining. So this is pre-social media. So I remember, I think we, we had an agent, her name was Jill Smoller. She, I think she's still there at WME. She was amazing. She was a rock star and she was like the first agent to really represent athletes. She had Serena Williams and Kevin uh, Garnett, I believe at the time. Um, so I got to work with her and her department a little bit, but it was only her and about two other agents. It was a very small department. Um, and it was actually across the street, but I always found myself sort of gravitating towards that world, but I was in the motion picture talent department. Gotcha. Well, so the Jason Scott brand, it, it definitely, it's definitely comfortable having, having a lot of your, a lot of your nets, but it, it brings a, a, a tailored sensibility. It brings a design quality to, to that area. And that's a massive area in the fashion industry. Were you yep. surprised when you started the brand that there still really was not a Jason Scott proposition? Was that, was that a, whole, a gap that you sought to fill or did you just sort of um, evolve into that? No, I, I was surprised. So working at William Morris, suit and tie every single day, um, kind of fell in love with tailoring that way. But I was always more of a casual person. So I was surprised in the marketplace that the casual side of things was always uh, oversized or slouched. It was hard to find a t-shirt that you could wear like underneath a blazer. Um, like you should be able to wear the sport coat you're wearing. I love it with a suit and tie, but you should be able to wear it also with just a t-shirt or a Henley underneath it to going out to a more casual dinner. And you couldn't do that, um, 
back in the day. Every t-shirt that you would put on, or Henley was always oversized, so it would bunch underneath the jacket. It just looked kind of sloppy. So casual wear was always meant for stay at home, be, you know, kind of oversized, sloppy, not really meant to be worn out of the house. Um, and I wanted to intertwine the two. I always felt like you could wear a t-shirt and even sweatpants and still look elevated, as elevated as if you're wearing a suit. Well, so as a guy who was formerly in the suit, a suited agent, right, um, to a guy who is often associated with the suit, uh, and, you know, my, my book, The Laws of Style, right, um, the prognostication of the death of the suit, the business suit, has been raging for a decade. Is this the absolute, you know, just piercing the heart of it? I mean, is the business suit dead? We've seen just in terms of some of the facts, right? Yeah. Brooks Brothers, bankrupt, right? John Barbados, bankrupt. Jose Bank, bankrupt, right? Men's Warehouse, bankrupt. I mean, it's, it's the writing is, is much more than on the wall. The blood is on the wall. Yeah. Uh, but what, what do you think uh, as a guy who has straddled, you know, sort of both professional lives? For sure. Um, so my answer might surprise you, I think, but my answer is no, the suit is not dead. Um, I, I think people in fashion are, are quick to want to either write off or kill an aspect of the industry. So you hear the suit is dead and you hear retail is dead. Obviously, due to COVID, people are not wearing suits as much and people are not shopping at all. You know, if they are, it's very minimal because of what's going on. But I'm still very bullish on retail um, on our end. And I still think it's a crucial part to the brand. And I would say the same thing for suits. I still think, you know, I don't think you're going to see weddings in the near future where the guy is, 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 you know, much as maybe you would help us. I don't want to see a wedding where a guy's wearing sweatpants and a t-shirt. Um, I still think that suit is going to be important. I think there's a business aspect of the suit. Sure. It's definitely declining. You look at JP Morgan, over the last couple of years, you know, their casual Friday used to meant no tie. Now their casual Friday includes khakis and a polo. Like that is a huge change for a JP Morgan uh, to make that. And I think you're going to still see that continue, just like you're going to see the work from home continue. But I still think you're going to you're going to see people wear suits. I mean, look, I love to put on a suit when the you know when needed. Um, there's still a feeling you get when you wear a suit that I think is is important. I think a lot of the brands, unfortunately, that are, 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 have closed because of COVID. I firmly believe that they were in a difficult spot pre-COVID and COVID was just the nail in the coffin. Um, but I don't think it's as much as the market that they were in, as much as it's, it's the brand and what was going on and were they adjusting to, to the new way of retail, the new way of shopping and the new trends as much as others. Yeah. I mean, you, I'll, I'll point out one of your garments that I have, which is a knit button down. It's a cotton yeah. knit button down that is too thick to wear on a day like today. It's August, yeah. but I will tell you, I got through many, uh, you know, a February and March uh, workday in the office in that shirt. Um, yeah. You know, and I would pair it with a knit tie and, you know, there was a lot going on up here, but it was really comfortable and it was... Um, you know, my version of fashion forward, where I felt like I was kind of straddling a line. So I distinctly remember uh, with, with no small degree of um, a pride 
when I received my GQ issue and saw Harrison Ford on the cover in a very handsome t-shirt and learned that it was a Jason Scott t-shirt uh, and further learned that he, uh, he came in with it on and insisted on wearing it for the shoot. What was that like? So, I mean, that whole experience was, was probably one of the coolest things that's ever happened to me personally and also uh, from the brand standpoint. Um, the, the funny thing about that is when you're in a magazine like a GQ, they don't tell you ahead of time, hey, man, Harrison Ford's wearing your shirt on the cover of the November issue. It's going to be awesome. They just get an, you just get an email about, about say a month before asking for photo credit, meaning they just want to know what shirt this is, what's the price, where is, where is it available? But it, that can be anywhere. It can be on from the cover to the back part of the magazine. It can be in a really small section. So as a smaller emerging brand, I'm not at all thinking, okay, cool, we're going to be on the cover. I'm just thinking, this is amazing. We're in GQ now. Uh, so that alone was just the coolest thing ever to get that email. I was like, holy shit, we're going to be in GQ. This is awesome. And then I honestly forget, like, not that I forgot about it, but I really wasn't paying attention to when the, the date was coming up because while it was cool that we were in GQ, I didn't think we were going to be on the cover. I didn't know who was going to be on the cover. They don't talk about that. Uh, so I woke up one morning, I got a bunch of emails and texts. Uh, and one of the emails that I remember vividly was from Garrett Muntz, who was the, um, the creative director right underneath Jim Moore at the time, a uh, buddy of mine. He sent me an email and he said, did you see it? And I'm just like, okay, this is awesome that Garrett uh, sent me an email like this. At the time, him and I weren't as close as we are today. So I was like, this is awesome, but like, what does that mean? Did I see it? Like, did I see what? So I was like, all right, this is strange. And then I opened up my Instagram just to like look at Instagram like I normally would that morning. And I'm just like, holy shit, there it is. Like, that's our fucking t-shirt. Like, that's the coolest thing ever. So I respond to him right away. And then he tells me the kind of the backstory about it. And it was just the coolest thing ever. Uh, Harrison obviously is a customer. The fact that he wore his own t-shirt, the fact that he wanted to wear it, it was his idea to wear it, just makes everything that much cooler. Um, and I got a chance to speak with him afterwards and I got the chance to thank him for wearing that because I'm obviously such a big fan of his. And the coolest thing was he at that moment said, thank you. I appreciate that. He said, I'm a big fan of yours as well. Um, which was, you know, I'm going to humble brag a little bit, but to have Harrison Ford say he's a fan of yours, uh, it's kind of the, uh, it's kind of peak life goals right there. Well, I have to ask, it begs the question, what is your favorite iconic, Harrison Ford, uh, uber macho role. I mean, you, you can go from obviously Indiana Jones or Han Solo, but then you could get uh, post-apocalyptic with uh, Blade Runner uh, yeah. or, or take a presidential spin. Um, so I'll, I'll just leave it with that. Who is it, what is your favorite role? So well, speaking of Blade Runner, he's actually wearing our t-shirt in that movie as well, which is pretty cool. Um, so that was kind of neat. Uh, Air Force One obviously was just, I mean, that was epic. It's kind of hard to overlook that. For me, it comes down to Star Wars, Indiana Jones, just because the iconic role of both of those. Uh, his style in Star Wars is epic. Uh, you gotta love everything about Han Solo. He's the coolest character in the world. In the galaxy. In the galaxy, yeah, <laughs> I know. Every, I mean, everything about that, like Luke and Hans, like their relationship. I mean, the, the Ewoks, I, I, I wanted an Ewok as a pet for my whole entire life. I'm still convinced that they're real and I'm gonna find one one day because they're the cutest things ever as much as I love my dog Wrigley. I think he would love an Ewok as a friend, but uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark and, and the Temple of Doom, 
I mean, it's, it's hard to get better than that. Uh, they're just they're so good, but that would be my go-to, I would say. Well, flipping a bit to brand collaborations, you've done a number, uh, not a massive amount. Uh, I think your brand nicely stands on its own, but uh, you've certainly done your share of collaborations and probably the one that um, I think resonates with me the most and you may be the most proud of is, is with Major League Baseball. How yeah. did that come about? So that was pretty cool. Um, obviously for personal reasons, I'm a diehard Cub fan. Uh, if you couldn't tell from the thing on my head, um, but growing up in Chicago, just growing up going to baseball games with my dad, it's always been a big part of my life. And then our offices and showroom are actually downstairs in our Tribeca store. So I've got our Wrigley Field seats, um, which I've been sitting in with my dad since I was a kid in my office. Uh, someone from MLB is a customer of ours. I had no idea who he was, was buying a bunch of stuff one day started talking about sports. Uh, it was, I think it was him, his wife, and his son. So I invited them to come downstairs into my office to, ch to check out some of the memorabilia that we have. He saw the Cubs seats and he's like, holy shit, you're a big Cubs fan. Like, yeah, man, I'm a, I'm a diehard Cubs fan. He proceeds to ask me if, I would, if I'd be interested in doing a collaboration with MLB. And my response was, yeah, of course. Again, I have no idea who this guy is. He tells me that he's a senior vice president of MLB. They're looking for brands on a higher level to collaborate with. Um, and then we spent about a few months going back and forth and came to an agreement that was more of a collaboration partnership than a traditional licensing deal, which is what they tend to do because I think they wanted to find products that could be sold in these higher level aspects of the stadium. Um, and, and more sort, sort of not necessarily to the game fan apparel, but stuff that he or she could wear outside of the game, you know, when they're on the weekends, when they're with their family or friends without it being such a fan gear moment. Um, so that was a really special thing for me to be able to collaborate with Major League Baseball from a personal standpoint has been the coolest thing ever because I've gotten to go to All-Star Weekend, gotten to hang out with some of these guys that I idolize, gotten to meet a lot of players, both present and past, which has been really, really cool. Um, and then I've gotten to take my dad and a lot of really cool experiences as well. Um, we've had dinner on Wrigley Field together. I've uh, gotten to take him, you know, in the stadium when there's nobody else there to show him the collection, which was really cool. Um, but the, the best, the best moment for me, the two best moments are one, he's never been on the field for batting practice. So I got to, through the Cubs, we got to go on the field during BP and we got to watch the Cubs take batting practice, which, you know, as, as a son, when your father does everything for you growing up and he takes you to games, you want to repay him. So to be able to do that was epic. Um, and then when we had dinner on the field, I remember it vividly. He was walking in the outfield. I was behind him. And I just remember him like almost Field of Dreams-esque where he's looking at the Ivy and he's looking at the, you know, the, the stands and he's by himself in the outfield. And he's just, I mean, you know, I'd love to know what he was thinking about. Um, and I probably should ask him, but it was just really cool. I took a video of it. Uh, and it was a pretty special moment for me to be able to have him uh, have that experience. Yeah, wow, That's, that is special. As is, I think, being a long-suffering Cubs fan, which um, maybe certainly the sting of that statement is, is gone. Yeah. Uh, but Chicago, massive sports town, right? Yeah. Uh, and a sports town that has a lot of franchises in it. Um, and a city which, you know, perhaps historically, but certainly in the news more recently, has been itself perhaps divided. Um, maybe speak to that, not the divisiveness, but, you know, the, 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 the White Sox-Cubs relationship, north side, south side, 
uh, what's that like growing up? And, um, you know, you, you clearly got deep roots to Chicago. Anything else about what's going on in Chicago that you feel is, is notable? Yeah, I think, I think growing up in the, so I grew up in, in the north side of Chicago. So for me, we were grown, like, just bred to kind of hate the White Sox. There was always an inner rivalry of you hate White Sox, you hate their fans, everything about that team. It was just, it was a bitter rivalry because at the time, the Cubs weren't that great. The White Sox were pretty good. I mean, to be honest, anyone was better than the Cubs back in the day. We were just terrible. Um, so it was frustrating of, of having that rivalry and also just not being good. Um, but as I've gotten older, I've learned to appreciate the White Sox more, not sort of hate them as much as hate is a very strong word. Um, you realize that your, your hate is deep rooted in something that just makes no sense whatsoever because you don't know any of the players personally. You don't know their fans personally. There's just no reason for it other than that, that pure camaraderie of sports that I, I do love that aspect of sports where you grow up hating a certain team for no reason, just from the competitive standpoint. Um, but there's not any real dislike or hate there. Um, but it's kind of funny because as I've gotten older, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a huge Barack Obama fan. Love what he's done. He's a White Sox fan. It's like, Big oh, come on, guy. Big yeah. So, like, you know, if I ever had the pleasure of meeting him, obviously I would give him a hard time for that. But, like, I wouldn't have any dislike towards him uh, now. Or, you know, there's, a, like, a huge common fan, uh, Chance the Rapper, Love His Mute. They're all White Sox fans. And I'm just like, oh, come on, guys. Like, you can't be – uh, you know, you can't be a White Sox fan. Or anytime there's a new Bears, um, not a huge Mitch Trubisky fan as of what he's doing right now, but I believe he was a White Sox fan as well. So you just root for, like, these new uh, people that you admire. You're like, please be a Cubs fan. And when they're not, you're kind of let down. But it does speak to the city, I think, the, the camaraderie of sports. I, I think it's gotten less heated um, over time. But it's, it's nice and unfortunate to grow up in a, in a city or state, I guess, that has – that rivalry because I do, I do think it teaches you a lot about sports um, but also family like I said camaraderie teams sportsmanship um, and it just makes things that much more fun to have that inner city um, um, rivalry and it's kind of nice from what's going on with Chicago right now I, I do feel like there's a huge movement there from a fashion standpoint which is really exciting um, you know everything from Kanye to Virgil has been doing really cool things uh, in the West Loop and trying to you know have more awareness to the city of Chicago. I think there's a lot of amazing talent coming out of Chicago. Um, a lot of amazing designers, restaurants, culture, art. Um, there's a lot of history there. Uh, it's obviously my favorite city, even though I live in New York. Um, so I think it's really cool. I feel like they've gotten a little bit more recognition for things outside of it being windy uh, and deep dish pizza. Um, it seems like they're getting a little bit more respect from the design and uh, artistic standpoint, which is really nice. I think nice the women's wear brand Creatures of the Wind is also um, relocated to Chicago several years okay. ago. Okay. Uh, nice. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, there's, there's an amazing uh, culture there. It's a very diverse city, which is really, really nice, uh, very clean. Um, and it's, it's a great place to be. I, I miss it a lot. Well, you know, I, I ask about the long suffering nature. I mean, as far as baseball goes, I have been a lifelong. Angels fan. Um, yeah, exactly. That's that's the typical reaction I get. Um, and you know, the 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 woe is me was mitigated in 2002 with a with a wild card appearance that that molted into actual a a, a you know World Series uh, championship, mainly by virtue of just walking Barry Bonds and and the fact that 
San Francisco Giants didn't have much else. But, um, yeah. you know, it's interesting the way a city that has two franchises in the same sport can really align itself in certain ways. And I think in Southern California, um, the Angels are never considered a Los Angeles team. They were considered yeah. an Orange County team. So I think it really is sort of a, almost a false divide as much as ownership has tried to insert Los Angeles in front of the name uh, from time to time. Um, so what about other collaborations? Have you, have you done them or are there any on the horizon for you? There are. Um, so we're always looking to, you know, to, to sort of grow the brand with collapse. I feel like it's, it's a crucial thing that brands can do. Um, and we've got one that we're working on now that we actually haven't announced yet, but I'm happy to give you sort of the exclusive insight. Um, it's sort of a two-way collapse. So it started with Liberty National Country Club in New Jersey uh, that we're really excited about. We're going to be working with them on a collection in September. And then with that, we're going to be working with the PGA Tour um, most likely in 2021, given what's going on right now uh, with no fans. But we're going to be working on with them, similar to what we do with MLB, but, but making kind of high-end merchandise for some of these events in certain parts of the clubhouse at a lot of these tour events that we're really excited about. Um, and it's, it's really fun because I feel like with collabs, a lot of times brands will get together and it just doesn't make a lot of sense. So for us and for me, there's got to be a sense of authenticity to it. Uh, I'm an avid golfer as well. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get back into it. I would play weekly when I lived in LA. Here, I don't play as much, um, but I'm trying to get out there more. And it's exciting uh, to be able to work with the PGA Tour on this because I do have this love for golf. Working with Liberty National is amazing because you know they invited us to play the course last week. It was an unbelievable experience. Um, you know, obviously we're looking to add other country clubs for purely selfish reasons. So I can just continue to play these amazing courses. Um, but it's, it's kind of fun to have these collabs where you've got MLB. I'm a diehard Cubs fan. You know, again, like I joke about the selfishness of it, which, you know, it's, it's part of it in a sense, because I, I'm able to do these things that I wouldn't be able to do without the collab. But I think that's what the customers can relate to because they see how much I love the Cubs or baseball or see how much I really do love golf, that it makes sense. It makes sense for us to do a collaboration with these companies and with these brands because there is that authenticity there. Um, so we're excited to grow that relationship with the PGA. Um, they've been great so far. We'll probably announce it, say, in the next 30 days or so. Um, obviously, we just announced it on your podcast today, um, which, you know, we're, we're really excited about. And then we're open to doing more with other, you know, with other leagues. There's been some preliminary talks with potentially the NFL or the NBA, um, you know, the sports side of things. I think there's a huge market there. And then other brands as well. Um, you know, we're open to doing collabs with brands that make sense that either I personally use um, or brands that I aspire to be like. Well, I don't think you should feel guilty for um, pursuing <laughs> personal passions uh, in, in the collaboration realm or through the company. I mean, um, part of the reason I have focused my practice on the fashion industry. It's been a personal passion and, you know, I'm, I'm unapologetic about it. Uh, there's nothing more natural. There's nothing more Jason Scott, right? Than you creating a line of golf wear uh, because you're passionate about golf and yeah. uh, similar to MLB and, and, you know, potentially the other sports uh, collaborations. Have you ever played with uh, Andrew Rosen? I have not yet. Um, I'm hoping to play with him soon. The closest I've got to playing with him is when I'm in his office 
and he has a five iron in his hand. Uh, and I'm making sure not to say anything to upset him so that five iron doesn't get uh, swung at me. Um, but, but him and, and David Neville would be uh, my perfect threesome to play with soon. And then if you play as well, uh, it'd be a lot of fun. Or Barack. Or Barack, yes. I would love to play golf with him. Uh, so we got Andrew, Barack, David, and myself. Um, no disrespect to Andrew or David, but I'll share the cart with Barack because um, I have so many questions that I just want to hound him with that have nothing to do with like politics, but more just like Area 51 and just other, you know, is there a book of secrets? Uh, you know, is there a secret agency that exists that's above the CIA? Right. But right. That's just a whole nother issue. But yeah, I would love to play with Andrew. And Andrew's been a great sort of unofficial mentor towards me. Um, greatest guy. And, and he's someone that has taught me about the wholesale world and, and why it's important. And, uh, you know, obviously you listen to everything that he says, what he's built. Um, brilliant man uh, and just an amazing person. The fact that he takes time out of his day to speak to me and give me advice is something that I'm, I'm truly grateful for. So, um, and yeah. I've heard he's a pretty good golfer as well. He knows retail and he knows golf for sure. Yeah. yeah. He's uh, you're, you're right to be fearful uh, with a five iron in his hand. Um, <laughs> even a hybrid club. I Let's talk about uh, your store because we met at your first store, uh, which yeah. you had for quite some time in the West Village. Uh, I think it was Sal Esposito of Rag and Bone, where I was serving as a part-time GC, uh, who suggested I pop in for a visit, and you were nearby the, the, the Rag and Bone headquarters uh, yeah. over in the West Village. And I remember coming in and kind of recognizing that it didn't feel very store-like. It was, it was nicely spaced out. There were several places to sit. Um, I met you in person. You were there. You, I think, may have even offered me a drink, even though it was um, a bit of a cheeky one because, you know, there was no permit, no alcohol permit up on the wall and there was no obvious bar, but uh, you let it be known you could, you could go down and, and grab one quickly. And, uh, you know, we just chatted and it felt like a very comfortable experience as a customer. Um, Tell us about that first store experience, and then we'll talk about, you know, your current store, which is a much vaster enterprise. No, for sure. And I've always kind of had an unconventional way of doing things. Um, so like you said, with our, our first store in the West Village, and obviously with our Tribeca store, the goal was to create an environment that wasn't your typical retail store. Um, a lot of it came from personal experiences that I had going into retail stores or, you know, the West Village store wasn't a very big space. It was about 400 square feet. Uh, if that. So a lot of times with those smaller stores, they can be intimidating. If someone's not in there, you don't want to be that only person in the store. It's awkward. You've got to deal with the salesperson. So I wanted to create a space that was very welcoming, that didn't feel like a traditional retail store. Um, so I found a space in the West Village that I thought we could sort of emulate or, or start what would be my vision for, for later on, on a smaller scale. Um, you know, it's really funny. Sal was one of the people that sort of helped me get the space opened up uh, I remember when I signed the lease, I had no retail background, no retail history. I knew nothing, what I, you know, no idea what I was doing when we signed the lease, when we opened up the store. Um, I worked the store myself for the first seven months. We didn't have any employees that ran the store. So I was there seven days a week, open to close, um, learning as we go how to do returns, exchanges, what our return policy was. Like some of the obvious things that you should have day one. I just kind of jumped the gun and was like, you know, fuck it, we're going to do this. We're going to open up a store. Like put my back to the wall and I'll just start throwing punches in the room and I'll get out of line. 
for sure. I mean, then honestly, that's kind of how I started the line too. I just started the, the, the brand on a, on a women, you know, uh, in a sense where I couldn't find anything that I liked. I didn't see anything in the market that existed and I wanted to create something, but I didn't really know what I was doing. And I, as weird as that sounds, I feel like that sometimes the best ideas or the best executions happen that way because you don't have a preconceived notion of how something's supposed to be done. There's not a blueprint that I'm using or that someone's using for how to accomplish this goal. You just do it however you would want it to be done and you hope that your vision and your idea is well received from customers and people you know, in the area. And that was always my hope. I, I, I had to have the confidence in myself to know that what I was doing was good and I believed it and I sort of drank the Kool-Aid and I hope that other people would as well. But you never know for those first two months, you're hoping someone's gonna walk in the door, but shit, like nobody might come in. There's always that risk. So uh, it was important to kind of have that smaller store and, and take a little bit of uh, baby steps. Um, but still it was a big overtaking. Like we, it was our first retail store. I had no idea what I was doing. You know, cash was very tight for us. Uh, I remember I signed the lease and that our deposit was due within seven days, I had to tell them that I was sick and out for a week and I just couldn't get up to go to the bank because I didn't have the funds in our account for the store. So like I played sick for a week and then we were hoping I needed that first month to be successful. Otherwise we were in trouble. And thankfully people came by and uh, I was a decent enough salesman or at least pretended to be. Um, and we did all right. Well, and I think the product as well can in some ways sell itself. Of, of that type of product. Um, well, so let's flash to 2018, I think it was, when um, yeah. you inked the lease on the Tribeca store. And for a time yeah. had the two locations. Um, but the Tribeca store, a much more ambitious enterprise, um, yeah. a, a location really almost comprised of, of an atelier-like feel because your offices, your showroom, uh, even some sample production is downstairs, um, yeah. as well as uh, event space, uh, certainly a bar, old wet bar. Um, you know, tell us about the thought around bringing that to life. And as we face COVID, uh, as you have faced COVID, how has that community uh, dealt with it since the physical space is, is harder to get to, but, it, but in some cases, yours being so large, uh, one of the safer yep. things to get to. For sure. So the, the, the word that you said that stands out to me um, is, is community. So when I was in the West Village store, we wanted to, I want to build a brand. I want to build a community. That's the main thing that we're doing with the company. Um, and I felt like we accomplished that in the West Village store with what we had created, but we were still missing that sense of community on a larger scale because you just physically couldn't fit that many people and do a whole lot in the West Village store. So as that store started to become more successful, I realized that we were outgrowing it. So I started to look for a larger space. Um, Tribeca has always been a part of the city that I've loved, admired, uh, felt like home. So I started looking down there. Again, it's not a place that you would think people are gonna go to for retail. You think Soho, you think West Village, you think Upper East Side. Um, but going in line with my unconventional way of thinking, I wanted to go to a place where there's a neighborhood, where there's a community, and that's where Tribeca was. There's not a lot of retail stores around here, um, but there's a, an amazing community, an amazing uh, sense of neighborhood that I really, really loved and, and became attached to. So I spent about, I don't know, four to five months looking at different places in Tribeca. Uh, I'm, I'm crazy enough to where when I found the space that I thought it was going to be at, I would come down here on seven days a week, all different times 
I'd stand outside to see if the traffic was good, um, just to get a vibe of, of is, does this feel like home? And, and the space that we're in now, from the moment I walked in, it felt like home. Uh, it looked nothing like it does today. We had to do a lot of work upstairs, but there was something about the rawness of the space that I felt like, I was like, this is it. We can create the vision that I have for the future of our stores. We can create that here. We can have that sense of home, that sense of new way retail in this space. Um, so we signed the lease in, in Tribeca. We kept both stores for a little bit because I had the fear of if we moved out of the West Village store, people would think that we're going out of business. So I wanted to keep both of those with a sign that says we moved, tell all of our customers that we moved to Tribeca and it worked. Like we were able to build this amazing community in Tribeca and then also bring over our West Village customers as well to have the space where families can come in and hang out with their kids. They can bring their dog off leash and play with our pup uh, Wrigley. You know, I wanted a space where you can come in and say hi, but not feel like you had to buy something. Yeah. Well, and what uh, I, I miss, because I haven't been back out uh, about that particular location, is it was becoming a bit of a menswear corridor. You yeah. were right around the corner from Stephen Allen's store, which has been there for, for a long, long time. Uh, there was a rag and bone store dedicated to menswear down there, which is now, I yep. think, um, women's and menswear. Uh, yep. There was uh, the Todd Snyder store uh, in the old yep. Crew location. And then Frenchette, where you could, if you, you know, were willing to elbow your way up to the bar because it's always crowded, you could, you could get a, you know, drink and sort of round out your, your evening. And I do think men yeah. respond to that way of engagement more. Um, you know, maybe, maybe speak to that. I, I, as, as a shopper, yeah. the last thing I want is someone coming up and selling me something. I'm very guarded against that. And um, I think certain department stores, uh, maybe because turnover is, is just more rapid, so there's no real relationship being built there, you did feel that salespeople were selling you, uh, yeah. as opposed to different environments where you felt like they're trying to guide you and develop a relationship, and they might point you to a product that is not in their store. Yeah. Um, is, that, is that a goal? That is absolutely the goal for us. Um, when, we, when we hire new people and when we're training them, um, the one thing I always say is if a, if a customer comes in and leaves the store without purchasing, purchasing anything from the store, my question to that sales employee is never, why didn't they buy something? It's what was their name? Do they live in the area? Like, tell me what you got to know about them as a person rather than trying to sell them on something. Um, you know, we always want to be there to assist. And if a customer asks a question, we're there to help and give them information on the fabrics, why our product is unique, what makes it special, but it's much more about the relationship. I love that most of our customers, we know them by name. We know their kids' names. We know their dogs' names. They know who I am. I see them on the street outside of the store. They say, hi, how's it going? You know, it's not this transactional store or brand or company. It's, it's much more about building a family and building an extension of the brand through our customers. And, and we've seen that translate to amazing sales, but also just building this, this epic community um, and having these sort of unofficial brand ambassadors. And I hear stories all the time about I was at dinner the other night and my buddy was wearing Jason Scott and I was wearing Jason Scott and we didn't know. And it was the coolest thing. We started talking about you and the store and like, that's the stuff where I, I get that someone can look at that and say, well, that's not scalable. That's one side. That's a small 
and, and I, I agree in that sense, but I do think you need that base. You need that uh, sort of excitement about a brand in order to scale it. I think a lot of times brands are so focused on scaling to a large level that they don't have that core customer or that loyalty and they go from zero to 60, which is amazing on paper, but then it's really hard to sustain it because they'll pivot into something else or their customer is finicky and they'll go to go somewhere else. Versus what we're trying to do is trying to build that brand loyalty. So that guy or girl that shops with us is loyal to us and they don't want to go somewhere else for their basics. They're always going to come back here because they've had an experience or they've had a relationship with us. You're in a market segment that is by all accounts thriving. Um, entire world, rich or poor, James Purse, these are contemporaries uh, of yours, but perhaps without the, the refinement and uh, the tailored uh, comfort wear element that uh, you so capably put forward. So I will ask, how is business? We're, we're doing well uh, also. Um, our online sales have sort of taken off during this, this tough time, um, which has been great for us. It, it's kind of a, it's a tough position because I always hate saying, we're doing well because I know there's so many people out there that are struggling and going through a hard time. Um, but you know, we're very fortunate that we haven't had to lay off any employees. Um, even though the store has been shut down, we've sort of reassigned people on the team to help out with other aspects of the brand. Um, but online sales have, have taken off for us uh, a, a lot during all this. They've, they've sort of been on a rise pre COVID. And then I think COVID just accelerated because like you said, people want to be comfortable. They want to be casual. Um, and they want products that are going to last as well. And that's what we have to offer. So I, I think it, it sort of talks about the, the longevity that we have as a brand because we can uh, sort of pivot depending on what's going on in the world without having to change our whole design aesthetic. So people are getting less stressed up to go to work every day. They're going to wear more of our stuff. But even as they go back to work, there's still a need for our product um, because people are still going to be casual on the weekends or even as going to work becomes more and more casual, I think people are going to start to dress down a little bit more and that's going to become more acceptable. So I think we're in a good spot. Um, what about, Jason, you know, I know that you are, uh, you know, sort of a three pillared, uh, enterprise in terms of yeah. that you have robust direct to consumer, you have a great location, albeit one. So, you know, it's yeah. not like you got 80 stores up and down the U S. Uh, and you do have wholesale accounts. That that third leg of the stool, so to speak, has has bitten many brands to the extent that was a big leg, um, because the risk of wholesale accounts either paying late or going bankrupt candidly. I mean, look, Neiman's, Barney's. Uh, I don't need to to go through yeah. the, the litany of, of of large retailers that have gone under. Um, maybe speak to that. How, how has that experience been? How are you dealing with your wholesale accounts? And are you looking to minimize that exposure? So we're looking to do the opposite. Um, again, I, I tend to do things from an unconventional standpoint. Um, I tend to do things opposite of what everyone else is doing. So right now, the sexiest word is D2C. Everyone's starting their own online business. Everyone is going direct to consumer. No one's opening up retail stores. And this is even pre-COVID. The, you know, the idea of retail stores is kind of frowned upon. When I tell people I wanted to open up a store, everyone told me I was crazy. Um, so with that said, we're looking to expand our wholesale business. Um, you know, we're about to work with a new showroom that we're really excited about that we think is going to help expand the brand because you need to be careful. You need a mix of both. Obviously, if you're doing 
let's say you're a brand is doing $10 million a year in sales, but eight of that is coming from, you know, two department stores, that's scary. That's dangerous. But if you're doing, and I'm just making up, these numbers, if you're doing 10 million a year in sales and seven is coming from in-store and online, and then three is coming from wholesale, that's okay. So I think you need to have that balance. I think you need wholesale to grow customer uh, awareness, customer acquisition. I still believe in wholesale. Uh, I think it's changing. I think the way people go about shopping is changing and evolving, which is exciting for us. But uh, for me, I think you do need wholesale. And I think retail is crucial. Again, obviously, COVID puts a wrench in a lot of things. But pre-COVID, we were looking at potentially opening up a second store in Chicago. We're still looking to do that. Obviously, it's not accelerated. Um, I still think brands need a footprint of you know, like you said, I don't think there's a brand that needs 80 stores in the U.S., but for us, anywhere from 10 to 15 stores in the U.S. strategically placed in communities that we feel we can be successful make a lot of sense. Um, I think consumers still like that. Um, you see a lot of these D2C brands that started out now opening up stores, um, and they're having a lot of success because I think people realize that. Um, you know, I, I don't get worried when I see the Barneys and, and Neiman's going out of business and other brands going out of business, because I just think that things are changing and they were in a tough situation. But I think if it's done correctly and you learn from the mistakes that other brands have made, I think you can actually be very successful with that three pillar approach of having wholesale, retail and online sales. Yeah, it's certainly a, a great vehicle for marketing. the brand. Um, yeah. Because customer acquisition online, as you well know, is incredibly expensive these days. Yeah. But for someone to maybe roll into a Nordstrom's in Phoenix or in Dallas or, you know, somewhere up in Michigan and see your product uh, exposes them to the brand in, in a positive way. So um, I'm sure that's part of the equation that you run. For sure. And then even just like touching on that social ads, you know, you hope that you can uh, send an ad to someone that is your customer, right? That's the hope, but it's very hard to do that. There's all kinds of algorithms that you can use to narrow that down, but it's very hard. But if we're in, you know, store X in Chicago, that is a luxury men's and women's store here, that customer that's going in there, he or she is our customer. So we're already attracting them by being in that store. It's, it's the perfect way for us to grow um, and get in front of the right people. Amidst a, a very welcome change in, in some ways in the environment in terms of recognition uh, brought about uh, from the BLM movement as to, as to inequality, not only with respect to treatment by the police, but um, in all aspects and um, yeah. some in, in some quarters with the fashion industry. Um, as a small company, is, is that difficult to deal with in terms of achieving diversity because just by sheer headcount? For sure. Um, I mean, look, it's, it, from an obvious standpoint, it's definitely more difficult as a smaller company just from, from a number standpoint. If you have four employees, it's harder to be diverse than if you have 400 employees. Um, but with that said, it, it's something that has always been a big thing for me personally, even pre-BLM um, movement. And then now with it, it's something that as a company, we, we stand behind fully, uh, we fully support it, and we want to do our part uh, to sort of help and, and, and bring awareness to that movement as much as we possibly can. Um, and it, it goes far beyond just posting on social media, um, just even saying to you, you know, you that we support it, we donated, um, you know, 
sales to a bunch of different funds uh, that we thought would help. Obviously, we're a smaller company, but we're still trying to do our part. And as we grow and as we hire, we always try to be an inclusive brand. We try to, you know, open up um, our hiring pool to anyone in that sense, regardless of gender or race. And something for me that's important is because I didn't have a fashion background, uh, I tend to not limit our employees when we're hiring someone for a position to someone that has a specific skill set. So I think with that, it allows us to broaden our pool a little bit as far as who we're hiring. I tend to go more on personality uh, versus resume. Um, but look, it's definitely something that I think everyone can look in the mirror and do a better job at. I, I like to think that I'm an inclusive person. Um, but given the movement, it's allowed me to take a step back personally and basically say, have I done everything I can to be the best version of myself? The answer to that, you know, I, full disclosure is no. Like I haven't been as amazing as I could be. And that and sounds weird to say, but I, we all need to do a better job. Um, you know, I hope that we can live in a world where these movements don't exist because there's not a need for them. So Jason Scott, eponymous brand or not eponymous brand? You know I talk about this and it's somewhat my hobby horse to, um, you know, to, to advise designers not to name them br their brands after themselves if they, can, yeah. if they can avoid it because it does cause potential problems in the event of a sale of the company or taking on investment where you're gonna have uh, even a minority investor have some say uh, as to yeah. how you run your business. Um, you know, clouding that with concerns about your own personal legacy is, is, is complicated. So why did you choose Jason Scott as a, as a brand? So I, in all honesty, as crazy as it sounds, I chose it for those exact reasons. Um, there's a sense of accountability that I'm held to because I have my own brand and because it is my, it is my name. So, uh, when I started the brand, the idea wasn't to create a brand, sell it, create another, like it wasn't this whole, just create different names of brands and sort of move on from there. It really was to create something that I would have forever, pour my heart and soul into it. So I knew that I would be attached to the brand for a long time. Um, that was definitely the goal when I started it. And it still is the goal to this day. Um, but also that accountability, because my name is on the brand, my name is on the clothes, there there's a level of uh, authenticity to your customers. Authenticity, yeah, exactly. And it should, it's important to me, too, to, you know, if I can't put my name on something, how am I going to sell it to you, I guess? And that's my biggest thing. If I'm, if I'm willing to put my name on it, I'm willing to sell it to a customer because I know that it's the best quality product. And the same thing goes, like you mentioned, with investors. We're doing our first cap raise right now, and that's kind of one of my uh, sales pitches to an investor is, my name is on this, like I'm all in. There's no, you know, half-assing it. Um, this is it for me. This is my one and done. Um, I pride myself as being a good person in the company and outside the company. It's not something where I could, do. again, like you said, if I did something that was controversial, it would affect the company. So that just makes me that much more aware. And, you know, I try to be as good of a person as I can, but I, I just think it makes me more responsible as a designer and an owner. Um, and it puts more pressure on me uh, because my name is on it, which I weirdly enjoy and like, and it comes from my athletic days of being a goalkeeper in soccer, and I would root for the team to get a breakaway on me so I could stop it. Um, I welcome that pressure. I like that pressure. Um, and and it, it, it enables me to create something personal so that way our consumers can get to know me, and I like to think that I open up my life to them and 
creates a connection that I think is special. Well, you know, I was a striker in college, so I hated goalkeepers. Uh, <laughs> yeah, dude, I would welcome it. I would well, love it. I would like to be with the guy with the ball, right? If you're the guy on the breakaway, you're supposed to score. It's like, oh, get, kick, yeah. right? You're supposed to make it. So uh, it was all pressure. I'd much preferred like a cross where, you know, I got a header in and there was, it was just reaction because I was a notorious oh, yeah. choker, believe it or not. Oh. Um, so enough about me and my, my, my fallible <laughs> soccer skills. Um, your, your apparel, I, I know you do designate for most of them men's, women's, but yeah. you probably find that um, mainly women also buy from the men's racks. Um, maybe sure. some men find, I mean, I know with certain brands, I, I find certain women's sizes fit me better. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's more women buying from men's racks. Um, yeah. What do you think about unisex design? What do you think about pure unisex brands? And is that yeah. something that um, you, know, you have a, as part of your offering and that you might evolve into? Um, so it's, it's not something that we're looking into right now. Um, I think it's great that it's, that it's out there for brands and, and for consumers as well. It's something that we're definitely open to and support fully. Um, I think to me, I look at unisex more from a versatility standpoint than I do from a male female standpoint. I feel like a lot of these brands that are creating more unisex, it just shows the versatility of the design. Um, which I think is really cool, unique, and really special. I think we've managed to uh, accomplish that too with our collection as well versus some of these styles. You know, the, the women are buying some of the men's t-shirts, more of that oversized boyfriend look. It kind of, it goes to show with, with fashion and with product that we're creating, other brands are, are creating, it kind of gives the consumer the freedom to choose how he or she wants to wear the product. And I think that's what's really special. Um, e even with our stuff too, if you know, we make casual wear. Well, a guy that or a girl that is more dressed up, he or she can take our casual basics and partner them with his or her more dressed up lifestyle or the opposite of that. Um, I see that the same with unisex. I, I see that um, people are able to take their personal style and, uh, you know, adjust to, to, to what they feel, um, you know, makes sense for them, depending on what the garment is, whether it's a male or female garment um i think stuff from fashion is evolving and becoming more acceptable i guess which is great it is really storming up here by the way so yeah. apologies to all the listeners like, who are hearing um you know sort of whipping winds and rain splattering against the window but um keeping it going uh, what are what are some contemporary brands that you admire uh, from either a design perspective or or their customer engagement for sure. Um, so one of them that comes to mind lately uh, is Ramoa, um, suitcase brand. Just love what they're doing. Um, love their branding lately, their partnerships. I just feel like there's something about that suitcase that is so elevated. It's, it, I was, would equivalent or equate it to the, the suitcase version of our t-shirt. Um, there's no frills on it. There's not a lot of branding. Um, but if you own it, you know why it's special. You know why it's a little bit more expensive. The craftsmanship is amazing. The branding is amazing. Um, there's just something about that suitcase that just elevates everything about travel that I love. And it, it's a timeless style too, which is really important for us. Um, with that, the other one that comes to mind, which is a little more of a cop-out, uh, is Rolex. I just, just cause they've been around for so long and it's such an easy 
one, but I feel like you look at a, a role, a Samariner, and it can be worn by so many different guys and girls and different styles. And again, you can take a watch like that that's so simple, but you can sort of adjust, you know, to the person's style and, and they can make it their own, which is really cool. Um, and then I also, from a brand standpoint, I look at Apple as a brand. Um, I don't, like, yes, they're a tech company and I'm not trying to create any arguments. They are 100% a tech company, but as a designer, they're a brand. Um, I have an iPhone, I'm talking to you on an iMac and I have a MacBook Pro. I use all Apple products. I don't have a good enough argument against someone that is a Microsoft guy, why Apple is better than Microsoft. I like Apple because of the brand. And I think most people would admit they're buying into Apple because of the brand that they've created. There's a sense of cohesiveness amongst all their products and all, there's a lot of things that make it easy, but they've created this brand that you just want to be a part of. Um, and same thing with Nike. Um, you know, I think they've done a, a great job uh, of doing it. And then on the sort of smaller scale, even though they're a, a large brand, I look at someone like, a, someone like Ronnie over at Kith, um, a lot of respect uh, for what he's been able to build in the streetwear world, but also in the, in the collaborative world. Um, he's done an unbelievable job building that brand and, and is someone I also look to uh, for inspiration all the time. Well, those are some, some great brands for sure. And, yeah. and some potential collaboration partners, no? Yeah, it's, you know, I would, uh, would let travel a lot. So I would love a little, uh, love some, somewhere down the line for those two for sure. So we have seen brands created out of um, the influencers on social media platforms. It's, 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 it's a fairly common phenomenon. Um, do you use influencers in the promotion of your own brand? Question, you know, part one. And then part two, what do you think about influencers who in and of their own right have created brands um, and, you know, the, the, the story that they create around them? Um, so we, we definitely partner with influencers for us. It's always been on an organic level, um, which has been really special, whether they found us through a friend or through social media. Um, but it's a great way for us to grow awareness. Um, it's a great way for us to, you know, increase our visibility on social things like that. Um, and it's a great way for us to grow the brand. So I feel like for us, influencers are key and crucial and, it, and it's all different kinds of influencers. It's, uh, fashion and non-fashion and sports, people with, you know, large followings, even sometimes more of a micro influencer. Um, someone even that only has 800 followers that's private is still a good thing because those 800 followers are probably their very good friends. And if, half of those people buy our collection it's a great way for us to acquire new customers and then on the larger scale obviously you've got a lot of influencers with millions of followers it's just it's unbelievable that with the press of a button you can get your product out to millions of people um it's it's amazing and, and we've seen it firsthand i mean we're having an unbelievable month so far we're four days in because we've had influencers organically tag us in certain things and it's just been incredible um to witness it so do you, with those, with those micro-influencers, as they're called, yeah. do um, those are just purely organic and, and kind of one-way directional? They're, they're coming to you? Or is there any outreach that you engage in or seeding uh, a product? Yeah, definitely a little bit of both. But definitely, I'll, you know, I'll reach out to people. I'll, I'll DM people um, and, and sort of as, you know, organically, like, hey, I'm a big fan. Uh, if they're a comedian, I'll say I think they're hilarious or I'll love their style. 
um, and then we'll seed products. We, we haven't um, paid for anything at the moment, um, but everything's been organic via seeding. Um, but yeah, a lot of it has, has, has sort of happened through the DM, reaching out to somebody um, and they've been receptive and it's been great. And a, a lot of my friendships have come from that. Um, just DMing influencers and they've been receptive, been open. Um, everyone that we work with now for the most part ha has sort of come organically through that. And I think that's what makes our brand really special that we've got these relationships with these influencers, um, but it's, it, it feels very, it feels more like a friendship. Isn't that access amazing too? I mean, as a former agent, right? I yeah. mean, agencies must hate that, that you can reach out yeah. directly to it, their client. Um, and, and put a business proposition in front of them and, and effectively cut the agency out. Yeah, I mean, it's great. Like, look, growing up in Chicago, I'm a diehard Michael Jordan fan, obviously. My access to Michael Jordan was if I saw him on the tree with yelling his name or mailing a letter to the United Center that would never get to him. Now, fast forward today, sure, LeBron probably has 50 million followers, but I can DM LeBron. Is he going to see it? Probably not. But there's a chance, like that's crazy that I could send a message directly to LeBron James, like it's bananas. And he might see it versus, you know, for me growing up, like there was no chance, there was no connection. And it's really cool um, that these athletes, these influencers, that these writers and directors and actors and actresses can kind of share their life for better or for worse, um, you know, to their fans. And I think it, it creates a really special bond uh, amongst people, which is, which is really fun to see and important for us too. Well, I know, uh, I know you're working with the Susans over at High Alchemy, the, the show. Yes. Case, so, so they will, uh, they will steer you, uh, to, to some great boutiques, I, I imagine. Um, well, Jason, we are out of time as the storm continues to rage outside, um, you know, batting down the hatches, but, um, it was great uh, catching up with you and uh, you sharing your insights to our listeners. Any any last or parting thoughts or any shout outs before we cut? Uh, shout out to me to the Susans. I'm excited to work with them. Um, a big thank you. Uh, I will say Ariel and Something Navy has been huge for us. Uh, Aaron Foster uh, was also another friend of the brand that gave us a huge uh, push on Solia. So I want to thank her. Uh, I'll give a shout out to Allie Shaver, like these kind of things. So she's going to be very embarrassed to hear this, but she is a lifesaver for us and the brand. She's kind of been my right hand through all this and she's been working her ass off through the pandemic. And she's over to my right right now and probably feeling very embarrassed. So I'll stop talking about her. Um, and the rest of our team, Sydney, Eliza, uh, everyone that works in the store, we built a family and family is important to me. Um, and I honestly would not be sitting here talking to you without all of them. Um, and they really are the key to the brand. I'm just the guy with the name on the door, but they keep the lights on every day. So I appreciate all of them. And you as well, Doug. You helped me stay out of trouble. Um, and, and you've been a big help to me over the past couple of years, lending advice. Um, and I really appreciate that as we grow. Well, so thank very you generous that. of you. Very, very generous of you and very heartfelt, you know, uh, for you to thank your, your entire team. When things get better, come say hi, come have a beer at our store. Excellent. Well, that's a wrap. Bye now. You've been listening to The Laws of Style with Douglas Hand. For more information, go to our website at www.hballp.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at, at Hand of the Law. Thank you for tuning in.
and stay stylish.